Welcome to Funny Women Behind the Scenes, a sequined covered podcast hosted by international showgirl and comedian Ivy Page. We'll be exploring what it's really like to work in the entertainment industry, from live comedy and cabaret to television and film. Brought to you by Funny Women, the leading community for female comedy. So let's get on with the show and welcome your host, Ivy Page. Hello and welcome to the real life work of art or piece of work, award deserving, flame haired titan of teas. Yes, it's me, Ivy Page. It's time to take a seat on my chaise lounge in my personal burlesque boudoir as we break the fourth wall, draw back the velvet curtains and reveal what really happens behind the scenes. Welcome to my burlesque boudoir, the award-winning comedian, writer, actor, and you've probably recently seen her on Mock the Week. And as well as that, she's been homeschooling three children during lockdown. It's the incredible award-winning comedian, Ria Lena. Hello. Hi. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. I am, you know what you said, Ria, can you come do this podcast? I said an hour alone without anyone else in the house. Yes, thank you. I'll do it. An excuse to shut the living room door and have it to myself. Let's do this. Uh, is this uh, the first time of having some time on your own for a while? I, Other than at night, yes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> now, Ria, okay, I want to talk about your fabulous career. Now, we've known each other for quite a long time now, haven't we? We've Years. Yeah, years. Cause we're, we're... Since, since we were babbies. <laughs> But look, we're looking even more fabulous. So let's tell our wonderful listeners, when did you begin your stand-up comedy career? <laughs> Let me see, how old are my children? My youngest is 11, and I gave birth to him in order to leave the day job and go into full-time comedy. Okay, so what was the day so, job? What did you do? I At that point, the day yeah. job was I worked for the serious fraud office as an IT forensic investigator. That was the day job. You know, as one does. As, as well, my day job was working in a in, in a bridewear shop. I think. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh! Do you know what I worked with criminals, and you must have had an even more of a nightmare time working with brides. I did. Yeah. Can you imagine bridezillas? Uh, and my one of the things I, I had to do is I had to try to sell accounts to the brides to <laughs> uh, to get commission. It was horrific. But we basically we kind of started out similar time. But you were a finalist in the Funny Women Awards. I was a finalist. So do you think um do you think the scene has changed since then? Comedy Huge, scene. Hugely changed since then. I think there was a reason that you know there was a very poignant reason for funny women to start up and to highlight the fact that not only are women funny but that there were enough women around to even have an entire competition. Uh, you know and and I think that that's changed. I mean we're almost almost ubiquitous I think we're almost we're not we're still not equally represented in comedy we're not you know it's not there yet and I think there's a but it's becoming an industry that allows uh men and women well I shouldn't say men and women I should say just people of any any identity it's it's now that inclusive and it didn't used to be and there were a number of reasons for that there was a number of reasons the way that it it evolved the way that it came out of mainstream entertainment the way that the alternative comedy scene was started it was not an easy life and it was not a uh, 
valid life choice, if that makes sense. Like it's not something that you could go to university and study. Whereas now you can, you can go yeah, to you university can do and study. You can do, you can do you degrees can do in comedy. Uh, you can do comedy all the way through your your university. In fact, there is a there is an award out there, the total award for the best student comedian. So it's a you know it's expanded massively over the last four or five decades into what it is now. But when I f- first started, definitely it was. It was the choice you made when every when you'd exhausted every other choice, as in you didn't fit anywhere else or or, you know, this this worked. So it was a wonderful and and I have very fond memories of starting out of of suddenly feeling that I fit in because I have always been a little bit unusual and and finding this ragtag bunch of mainly men. Uh, that accepted me for who I was. Uh, and the only metric at the time was, are you funny? And if you could get on stage and I, and I have to say that even though there weren't that, that many women at the beginning, and I know that there were reasons why it was hard for women at the beginning, I did find that once you did have a foot in the door, the only metric was, are you funny? And if you were funny, then you had the respect of your peers. That was my experience. I'm not speaking, of course, on behalf of all women, because I know that there have been some other, uh, there have been horrendous stories and, and and the rest of it, but that certainly was was my experience, and I was very lucky to have that. I think that's interesting, isn't it? The metric of it's just, are you funny? Yeah, and that's that's isn't that what it should be? I feel like that's what it should be, and I and I think that we're going to go around a really big circle to come back to that again, and I think that's where identity politics is going as well. Is we're going to go in a huge circle where everybody gets to say, "Hi, I identify as this. This is my label. This is who I am," and t- and we're going to flood the market with everybody's label to the point where nobody needs labels. I think that's going to be where we get to. And in a way, we'll come full circle. Originally, there were no labels because there was only one. There was only the straight white male. Uh, And then slowly, slowly other people came in and said, well, actually, these are my labels and this is what identifies and this is who I am. And as as we broaden everyone's horizons and we get used to just seeing, you know, a cornucopia of 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 types and sizes and colors and uh, and identities eventually we'll get back around to the point of going do you know what do we need all these labels and i'm hopefully the answer will be no we don't let's just be people yeah i hope that too i mean obviously there's the same that that that, that same kind of principle applies in the world of cabaret too you know particularly being a cabaret host um i'm introducing people all of the time so actually you know I completely agree that at the end of the day, we're all just people. And, you know, in terms of language and how we use language, you know, I can even remember 10 years ago, we weren't having these conversations before we introduced people. But now it couldn't be any more important. But ultimately, it's when you are on stage, it's are are you performing to the best that you can? Are you funny? Are you whatever you do, whatever it is, you're singing, you're dancing. It's is that what is valid on the stage? That's kind of how I see it. And that's I so that's what it should be. But you're right. I think there is more conversation about how would you like to be represented before you represent yourself? And it's a strange one because in some ways you go, well, hang on, just just say my name and I'll do it. And if you're a stand-up like myself, uh, I have, you know, I use words on stage. And therefore, if you were to only say my name, I feel like I could come out there and go, I'll fill in the rest. Don't worry about it. But you're a host in cabaret. You're quite right. And there are acts that don't speak or there are acts that, you know, wear wonderful costumes where they might feel like this is how I need the audience. This is the picture I need you to paint before I come out on stage. Uh, and that's perfectly valid too. I think that's one of the other things that's changed uh, in 
in performing since I started is it was perfectly standard and acceptable to say, ladies and gentlemen, uh, yeah, I was I very conscious that. of the fact that when I say that, especially in cabaret, that that actually is quite exclusionary. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, so I'm so glad you said that because actually, of course it's, you know, that, that phrase is hundreds of years old, but it's so outdated now. And you're right. It's exclusionary. It doesn't include our audience. So why would we say it? Well, it actually, I don't, I mean, if you think about where it came from, it didn't really include, it was very exclusive back then, it, back in the, you know, Regency romance times. If we go to Bridgerton, when you say ladies and gentlemen, you only mean a very thin strata of society, don't you? You don't actually mean the men and women that dressed them, that cooked for them, that, you know, washed their clothes afterwards. We only meant ladies and gentlemen. Um, and that was it. So it is, High time. I guess it's high time that that evolves into something new. What do you use? What's your phrase now when you come out instead of ladies and gentlemen? Well, I, you know what? It's different every time, but I always, I, lovers, past, present and future. Oh, wow. I love that. And that's ambitious of you. Can I just say that? I'm, I'm going <laughs> to live through you. <laughs> Funny women behind the scenes. All the backstage gossip and more. language has a rhythm to it and language has a beat. And that's something we were very keenly aware of in comedy. You can get a bunch of comedians. People always wonder what happens in the green room and they want to come back to the green room. What happens backstage? And, and if someone gets invited, they're so excited to be there, you know, uh, watching the magic. And honestly, a lot of the magic backstage at a comedy club is people arguing about which number is the funniest and which color that joke should have. And should it be Greg's or should it be Waitrose in that story? You know, and, and, and the merits of those that we get down to the minutiae of, of okay, yeah, so that that's interesting because I was I wanted to talk to you about this. Obviously, you're a writer and you write material for yourself and do you write material for other people as well? Uh, I have done a little bit. I don't do much of it if I'm honest, just because I have so little time to write that I tend to want to write for myself, but I have oh, done. But in terms of topical um comedy, which obviously you're doing, writing a lot of at the moment, um, I mean, how finite is that process? Can you t- can you tell us about that process? Well, I think you have to start with the concept. You might say, you, you know, you know, you might turn to a fellow comic and say, I have this idea and I can't quite figure out. I know there's something funny in this. That's the first thing is the instinct of there's something in this. And and it might be a situation or a conversation or this thing happened to me. But how do I turn what I experienced or what I'm thinking about? what's going on in the world into a joke because a joke has you know it has a setup and a punchline if you want to you know if you break it down to its basics but there are ways of you know there's different types of joke and there's the pull back and the re- pull back and reveal or there's the swapsy or you, you just got so many different ways of of bringing humor across once you have the basics of it that's when you then you know a one-liner joke can be rewritten a million times as you swap things around are you going to you know ending on a preposition is never as strong but every so often there is a reason to end on a proposition preposition sorry and uh, and you can't avoid it you know the what is the what is the element every sentence as you know in english you need a subject you need a verb you need an object in the sentence and you have those elements in a joke and which one needs to be revealed 
uh, uh, at the end in order for the joke to work. If you reveal it too soon, suddenly it doesn't work. So there's all of this science to it. And yes, you can get down to the nitty gritty. So as an example, actually on this episode of Mock the Week, there's a joke that made it to the edit where I said, well, it, you know, it was talking about the Capitol Hill riots and mm. they were saying how how little security there was. And I said, well, hang on. The amount of security depends on who's actually protesting. When Black Lives Matter protested, they had the Washington police, they had the oh my National God, yeah. Guard. And then then there's a list of four, uh, four fictional items. There's the Army of the North. They had 5,000 uh, Imperial War Troopers. They had dragons that, you know, the Terminator. There was a list of things. And actually that list of what to include, there were six things that I mentioned that actually got discussed, I think for at least half an hour, we decided. So uh, the I was oh, writing- on one joke, there's one uh, I'm writing with Luke Tolson uh, for Mock the Week, and he's wonderful. And he said the Dothraki is, is a, and I said, it's a great word. I have no idea who the Dothraki are. And I think they're an army in Game of Thrones, but I've never seen it. So then becomes a discussion. Well, who else will know this? If I say the, you know, if I say that, who else will know it? Is it right to have it third? Should it be fourth? What should come second? Originally, we had the Terminator in the joke. And then Arnold Schwarzenegger released a statement where he was condemning what was happening. And we went, okay, we can't really put the Terminator in. That's not quite right. It's it's down to that level of detail where you go, ah, quick, go to the script. Arnie did something and we need to take the Terminator out of the reference for that one joke because it suddenly has a different connotation because he is the Terminator as yeah. well. He's, he's our Terminator. Um, for, for some of the younger folk, he's not, but you know, so it's that, that's the level to which you will just, you know, you can discuss a joke. And, and there are times where if you don't script things precisely, if you're on stage and you say it two or three different ways, some nights it hits and some nights it doesn't. You're like, ah, oh, I didn't stress the right word or I didn't breathe in the right place or I didn't make the right face. I mean, comedy can be really quite subtle in that way where you can notice, oh, I didn't give, I did not give that joke what it deserved is what we would yeah. say. So this is interesting because listening to all that, to me, it seems very much that there's almost a science of comedy Oh, definitely. There's a science of comedy because if it was an art, just an art, I wouldn't be doing it because I am notoriously bad at art. I failed art across school. Everyone's trying to get me to draw an orange and I'm going, I can't draw an orange. Here's a circle. That's not an orange. Well, that's what I see. I, it is definitely a science. I am a science. There is so much. There are so many ways to analyze it and break it down. But obviously, I'm kidding. There is an art to it. There is just a je ne sais quoi. There's an instinct. It's what we would say. Some people just come into comedy with funny bones. They're just born with it. And some people have to work at it for years to find a way of making comedy work in their voice for who they are. Do you think there is a big difference between writing your comedy for TV as opposed to writing your comedy for live live shows? Uh, yes and no. I mean, obviously you would, the ideal is, uh, the, uh, there's a moral ideal. So essentially in a live room, you might be able to say a line and if it gets a negative reaction, because you're right there, you are able to soothe or smooth it over or, or talk to the audience or re-communicate with them to go, okay, I hear you. That wasn't, maybe that was a little over the line but here, let me give you some other stuff that isn't, or let me apologize for that. You don't have that option in television. The moment you say something out loud, it is in the edit. I mean, it is, it has been recorded. And then it's up to the producers as to whether or not they include that and how you are presented. So I think it's writing for T. So 
I think when you're writing for both, you need to make sure you're saying things that you feel you can, that you're comfortable saying and that Mm -hmm. you can back up because there is room in live work to be more free than there is on television. The truth is that the bigger the audience, the more, this is just basic math, the the larger the number of people that are consuming your product, the wider the number of opinions and experiences and types of people that you are playing to. And therefore it's, you know, whereas you might, if you only play the same 20, 30 people in your local pub, then you might be able to get away with something that might be considered a little bit xenophobic or a little bit inappropriate because they know you, you know them, you all find that type of humor acceptable. But, you know, as your audience grows, my basic rule of thumb is don't say anything I'm not I'm not happy to say. And it's actually, I know this sounds strange, it's actually Frankie Boyle's as well. Frankie Boyle will not tell a joke that he's not 110% happy to stand behind. And I know that a lot of his stuff generally is is ill-received, uh, but that's always been his rule. And when I heard that, I was I adopted that early on and went, yeah, that's a, that's, that's a fair shout. Do you, feel a, do you feel a responsibility now that you're a comic on TV? I think you I think there's a responsibility whether you're on TV or not. I don't think TV is the dividing line. I think I think uh being, you know, I think especially now where anyone can t- whip out their phone and record you in a gig and we've seen that we've mm-hmm. seen that backfire on people before. Yeah, you need I think there is a certain responsibility, but I think you have a responsibility utmostly uh, 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 to yourself. Are you happy to be that person? Because comedy, just like Cabaret, as you know, we are playing characters, but we still have to own those characters. Mm, yeah, we still I need agree. to we still need to be happy with that. We can't and and I know that that it is possible to create a character that you don't agree with or that you're juxtaposed from. Of course, I could write a sketch and create a comedy Hitler. That's been done a million times. I'm not saying that the person playing that should should be ashamed of the fact that they're playing that character. But when you are coming on essentially with your own name or with a name that people identify with you and you alone, and those are the characters we're playing, then yeah, there is a responsibility to yourself to make sure that you can sleep at night. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I even, you know, I think what we do live should be, should have the same sensibility and the same kind of moral implications of what we do on TV. I know having been myself in the doing stuff on TV when suddenly everybody has an opinion about you, um, how easily it is for Mm. people to run away with, with certain ideals, if they go and look on your social media and they'll form an opinion about you. So it's even more important that what you're putting out there, you're standing behind and but that's what comedy is for. That is what comedy is there for, is to be able to say in jokes like the Black Lives Matter joke uh, is to highlight the fact that, well, there was a massive disparity in Washington between how they decided to defend the Capitol against black people who weren't even actively or verbally saying we're going to attack. They were just like, we're going to be outside and protesting. That's what Black, black Lives Matter was very clearly not uh, a planned insurrection this one, there was, there was plenty of, of of chatter about let's do something more than protest. And yet the reaction to it was was remarkably under understated. So such, these are such big, important issues, isn't it? That we have these voices, we have these platforms where we actually we can challenge these opinions and, re- and, and through TV effectively, isn't it? We can reach these much bigger audiences than we are ever able to reach in small, those small live environments. Um, so it's even more, it's kind of even more important. This is Funny Women Behind the Scenes. If you want to know more about us, visit www.funnywomen.com.
Do you think people use comedy as escapism? Of course. I th- and now more than ever in, in this pandemic, I, I definitely think so. I, I, I'm really quite amazed. If I think back to where the comedy circuit was in March, where overnight every club shut, just within a week's like, boom, you need to shut and you need to not open again till who knows when. And we went, how is how we what we're just supposed to not work we're not supposed to not do what we do because stand-up comedy is is quite famously something that you cannot rehearse this isn't acting i can't learn my lines in my bedroom and know that they're definitely all funny they're all i'm only going to find that out when i go on stage and give them a go and so where were we going to do that and now uh this past christmas i think i did in, a, in one week i did 18 or 20 zoom well, um, I was going to say, I hope you don't mind me saying this, and I think it's kind of, but you've had, like, in terms of comedy, I know obviously the lockdown has been, all the venues have shut, but you, I have just witnessed you go from absolute strength to strength to strength. It's been, it's been a great year for you, hasn't it? I I, well, as I said, yeah, I can't, I can't complain about what 2020 has been for me. Obviously on the, on the people side, I haven't been able to see my parents. My sister was supposed to come over for Christmas and she couldn't. So, and she lives alone and she lives, she lives alone in New York. So that's been really tricky. So on that, you know, there is that side of things, but um, yes, I think I won't say it was anything other than not not just luck i like i haven't worked for as long as i've worked to to call this all just oh i just fell into it but it's been a very lucky year for me yes uh, and and it's not something that you ever you know it wasn't something that went into it but when everything shuts down you have a choice you can either just also go into into stasis and wait till it all comes out. And some people have, and that's a perfectly legitimate choice. And some people went and found other ways. And I, I also, you know, I, you, as you know, I'm not just a comedian, I do cabaret and I do, I, I have do voiceovers and I also do acting. So there were a lot of other little strands that allowed me to explore that enough. But, but my original point about the zoom stuff was that comedy's evolved now to the point where I don't think zoom gigs are ever going to go away. I think this is going to be, a, a permanent fixture going forward. Even once we can have live gigs and pack in together in a basement because we're all vaccinated, I still think that uh, that this new online approach is going to be there. And as someone who's always been quite, I'm a bit of a tech geek, so that wasn't something I was scared of embracing. I wanted to um, ask you, because uh, this kind of links onto that, about how does, so I've seen you on Sky News. Now, obviously, we know that you do more than just stand-up comedy, but uh, you have a PhD. Can, come on, tell everybody about your, it's not just the science of comedy. Ria is also an actual scientist, a doctor. I, I Yes, I, I did a PhD. So, okay, the, the story is I was in high school. I had a wonderful biology teacher and I fell in love with the subject, but I'm not sure that I wasn't just in love with it because he was such a wonderful teacher. But I fell in love with viruses. And I think because I was always a bit of an outcast and a bit unusual and the rest of it, I, they just captured my imagination and never left. And so when I, after my bachelor, I did a bachelor's in pathology, which covers a whole range of, of diseases and, and, and that kind of thing. And then I went into my PhD and focused on virology. So I, I became a virologist uh, back then. I actually studied herpes viruses, always a winner, always hey. a winner. Nothing <laughs> like someone calling you up going, Ria, I heard you know about herpes viruses. Can you look at this for me? No, I cannot. Thank you. Not, not that kind of doctor. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, but uh, good to know. I'm never going to sleep with you. Uh, so I yeah I have a I have a I have a background in virology and uh, that was and then I had my kids and then I 
did some forensics and went into the serious fraud office. So that was my path. But when this happened, um, you know, when the pandemic happened, uh, it was very clear, especially at the beginning, that there was a lot of information being thrown about, a lot of, you know, highly technical information. People were scared and, and there was, you know, I wasn't gigging and there was room to help with science communication, because that's a huge part of what's going on right now. Of course, everybody's, you, you know, everyone's got their role to play. And we, we talk about key workers and we're always listening for the, the WHO and what's the next thing that they're going to say, the World Health Organization. And, you know, we all know Professor Chris Whitty um, now. And but sometimes that that it really helps people. Everybody learns this way. You know this, you're a teacher. Repetition helps. And so if I could help by just repeating some of those messages, saying them in a different way, uh, repositioning it so that people can understand. I mean, just the basics of what's going on. I mean, people, on, you know, in America, famously, they don't know the difference between a virus and a, and a, bac and a bacteria, which is why they over consume antibiotics. Because as soon as they have a cold, they're like, give me antibiotics. You go, well, it won't work if you have a viral cold. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was just about helping with that. So do you think that kind of links into the, the as an artist, uh, the ability to adapt? I Yes, actually, I love that question. I love that question. I think that art is about adaptation, definitely. I think that's kind of what we do. We're, we're a certain reflection of what's going on. That's our role. Uh, you know, there, there was a point at the beginning, especially for, right at the beginning when the, you know, when people were losing their jobs and, and pubs were shutting and restaurants didn't know what was happening next, we didn't feel right to necessarily shout too loudly and go, hey, I'm a comic. What about me? Uh, you know, to just kind of sit there and go, mm, not my not my place right now. There's there are people in, in more trouble than I am. And this idea that you've chose that life, that is a huge issue with people thinking that self-employed people are lazy and and could do get a proper job it were anything but lazy <laughs> right well i know i know yes you know how running your own business is just like sitting on the sofa all day it Netflix. isn't but after a couple of months once you know people had settled into a bit more of a rhythm that was the time to come back out and go okay this is what I can do. We can entertain. We can keep spirits lifted. And we know how important that is. We've seen all of the movies where they, you know, you know, the the, the World War II movies where they go over and entertain the troops. And 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 I know plenty of my friends going to have gone to Cyprus and entertained the troops that were that were there on break from from Afghanistan and in Iraq. So it is an important thing to keep spirits up, and that's where we are right now. And 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 that's what um, that's what we're able to do. Um, a lot of our listeners would be a kind of a comics or aspiring comics. Would you give how what tips would you give them from a professional about adapting during this situation? The thing that that exists now that never existed when I started is the ability to make your own success. Uh, and we have seen this. And actually, what's been really interesting is to see who. There's a hierarchy. It's it's unspoken of, but it exists. There's definite hierarchy in comedy. There is one in cabaret. You know, yeah. who would you hire? Who's the first hooper you would hire? Who's the second hooper you would hire? And so on. And and the same thing in comedy. What was interesting to see how that hierarchy was irrelevant when it came to adapting in the pandemic. And there were people that maybe were just getting paid 15s instead of headlining on a weekend that were suddenly, you know, just creeping up because they turned to their social media channels and they put the work in and the effort in and they released regular content and, and their audience is growing. And so right now that's the, the answer is you can actually build your own audience. And we couldn't do that. When I started, there was nowhere other than the clubs to be seen and be liked. So 
we know there might not be a live gigs coming up next, but I know you've got lots on. So where can people find you? Well, they can definitely watch episode eight of Mock the Week. That's on uh, of the next month. Pretty, It'll be on iPlayer for the month of January on BBC Two. And then otherwise, if you go to my website, do you remember websites? I love websites. Yeah, I, if you go to realina.com, I always keep any Zoom gigs that are open to the public for ticket buying are 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 listed on there as well. So you could come in. And the beauty of that is we don't have to be in the same place. So it doesn't matter where you live. You can come to a Zoom gig. And you might get a fancy backdrop. I've got a great backdrop right now. Yes. Uh, with Ria. I'm I am I'm I'm doing a, I'm going to go do a little yodeling later. So that's why we've I'm got we've got a, we've got a European village backdrop. <laughs> Um, it's always my pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for being um, a fabulous guest on Behind the Scenes um, My and stay safe and I look forward to seeing you either in Zoom or live or on Mock the Week or on my TV screens very soon or socially distanced in person across a a long divide. I am missing, Ria and I, we often perform on cabaret shows together, don't we? Yes. Um, it's, just, it's always my pleasure. Uh, I love walking on after you because the audience have had such a great time. It's always, <laughs> <laughs> the room is so warm. It's just like the perfect moment to come back on and do something. Um, so I miss that. I miss that dearly. But um, it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much for being a guest. <laughs> It's my favourite time of the week where I like to entice her out from the gin cabinet. It's our head honcho, the incredible words of wisdom from our funny woman, Lynn Parker. Hello. This gin cupboard is getting bigger every week. I'm now in the gin cupboard. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm building up your part, Lynn. <laughs> okay. I like that. So I thought I really enjoyed talking to Ria Lena and I think one of the really interesting things for me that came out of that was learning and discovering more about how you write for a TV show like Mock the Week. Yes, yeah, it was really interesting to hear her talk about that and her experience. I still think there's a shortage of women around the writing tables on these shows. Um, Obviously, programmes like Mock the Week eat up content and they're news-based. So I would like to still argue that that type of comedy is still, it's still very male. There's, which is ridiculous because if you look at a newsroom, you know, like a proper newsroom Mm. and news reporting on TV, it's very balanced. You've got just as many, you know, brilliant, news um newscasters like Laura Koonsberg and I can't think of anyone else off the top of my head but you know there, there's lots of amazing women reporters but for some obscure reason there's still not enough women brought in to write that kind of content I think it's improved hugely in the in the um you know last 10 to 15 years but it still seems to be a very male domain um, and I know that year, in about, I think in 2009, I went to the Women in Comedy Festival in Boston and sat on a panel with American comedians and producers, uh, women American comedians and producers, talking about how difficult it was for them to get a place at those writing tables. Which really? Is, I don't know how bad it uh, it still is, but... Um, you know, we have a we have a chapter in 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 Boston, America, with funny women, and 
recent conversations were such that it is still quite bad and still quite sexist. So I don't know. I mean, other than doing what we're doing, um, and we should keep on doing it, you know, it's the See Jane campaign that Gina Davis runs in America, all those things, what we're doing with Funny Women, this is how we get those women at those tables, whether it's to write characters for sitcoms, uh, news type jokes for um, panel shows and, you know, topical programmes. I suppose the, the a probably good example of where women have done quite well um, alongside people like Rhea is things like um, The MASH Report, where you've got two absolutely brilliant female presenters, uh, Rachel Paris and uh, Ellie Taylor, along with Nish Kumar as well. And it's just like, um, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's, as its name suggests, it is a bit of a mashup because culturally it's a mashup and gender it's a mashup. But it is also news focused. It's topical comedy and it reflects what's going on in the world at that time. And I think we need more more women's voices, not just in front of the camera, but also in those writers' rooms supplying it. And I know with MASH Report, they've they've genuinely tried to encourage that. Uh, and I, I know that Rachel and Ellie do quite a lot of writing themselves as well. So it's so that's kind of the where we where we're getting to. And I think that makes a huge difference to the, you know, the diversity and inclusion of everything that is being put on our screens. Um, I still think the panel shows have a tendency to to be male biased. Hopefully that will change. Uh, but I, you know. It's it's all an evolution, isn't it, Ivy? You know that. It, I don't know if it's the same in the world of cabaret as well, but it's interesting because I always like to think of a cabaret and comedy. Somebody asked me this recently about um, are they similar cabaret and comedy, and I think that they are part of the same family. But cabarets, the like the glamorous, aren't. <laughs> holding the Prosecco. Yeah, but Cabaret has more permission to be sexually ambiguous as well, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, and also I think, you know, if you just look at its very roots of Cabaret, um, you know, it, it is political. It wasn't, it's making statements. It's, it's, it's satire. So, uh, yeah, you're right. I think it has a certain more, a certain permission do I think that it's underrepresented with um, with women? Actually, no, I don't. I think there are lots and lots and lots of strong women, um, all different genders, working in cabaret. I, th- I think it's a conversation and there's still lots of more work to be done um, and we need to keep having this conversation without a doubt. Um, do I, as a woman, feel marginalised in cabaret? From my own perspective, I can honestly say no, but obviously I can't speak for everybody. Um, but uh, yeah, I like to feel like I have my my feisty space that I forged for myself. Um, but it, it'd be interesting for me to transfer that into the world of comedy because that is a different circuit. So I will, you know, that is the next frontier for you. That I is. I've got my pickaxe to smash through that glass ceiling. So I'm going to send you back to our ever-growing gin cabinet, uh, Lynn Parker. I've put some pink gin in there for you. Um, uh, 
So enjoy, and I will see you for our next episode of Behind the Scenes. You've been listening to Funny Women Behind the Scenes with Ivy Page. If you like us, please subscribe, review, and share. 